Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here this morning. I'll read you the headline from KTAR.com. Arizona Corrections Director says drugs getting into prisons has a plan for reform. Uh, the person behind this story in large part is Taylor Tassler. She joins me now. Um, first of all, I want to tell you great work. And this is, this is an amazing series that you guys have put together. Thank you. Let's talk about uh, some of the background here. Um, you, you've talked to the governor. Mm-hmm. You've talked now to the new DOC director. Yes. Um, impressions of what they had to say about both. Pretty candid. Yeah, I he was extremely transparent with me and just really forefront. He answered all of my questions. And when Governor Hobbs, you know, became the governor and decided to really take on the Department of Corrections, her whole thing was transparency. And I from the conversation I had with him, he's exactly what she pledged to the community. Uh, I want I, I want people to hear what's part of the interview. And people can see the interviews and read the stories over at KTAR.com. And I think if you're a citizen of Arizona, or anywhere really, but Arizona, you need to hear what's going on in prisons. I want, you, I want people to hear just a little bit of what he said about drug use in the facilities. There's a substance use within our facilities. Uh, that's an issue in corrections that we've been battling for decades. Now, he came from the state of Maine. Yes. And so he's talking about this being a national issue. Were you a little surprised that he was that candid about it? I was. I asked him about, he you know, told me at the start of the interview, I, since being here, I've noticed strengths and weaknesses. And we kind of went in and I asked him, you know, are drugs in prisons? And he, that was his answer. Yes. And he also not just saying it's an Arizona focus, but it's something nationally that's been focused. And I think there's always been rumblings that this is going on, but you've never heard someone, the head of a department, acknowledge it and say that it is happening. So it caught me off guard in a way. Did they go into any specific detail, whether it was him or the governor, go into specific detail of how those drugs are getting into prisons? The governor had concerns and suspicions, but nothing to confirm, specifically after the MCSO incident where Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone came out and said a detention officer was arrested for allegedly trying to smuggle drugs there. She told me that concerns me. I don't think that is just a one-time thing, and it wouldn't surprise me to find out if that is happening at the state level. I followed up with him because I asked him, how are drugs getting in? He told me there's multiple ways. They can get in through the mail room, through visitation. And so I asked him, you know, this is a concern of the governor's. Are you aware that this is a concern of her, hers? And he said, yes, you know, this is a way that it can get in. He really said any way that people can come into our facilities is a vulnerability. And so the goal is to eliminate those vulnerabilities and find a way to make them more secure. So he acknowledged it as well that, you know, he didn't necessarily say it's happening here, but he did say, you know, yeah, it's a that does happen. In the case of MCSO, the sheriff acted very quickly in saying we are going to purchase separate scanners that employees will use. They won't go through the same ones as inmates, but they will be scanned as a public safety, officer safety, inmate safety issue. And he acted very quickly. Are you? Are they saying there are some quick changes that are being made and what are they doing to try to stop this at the state level? Yeah, I followed up with the director and asked him and he said they are currently implementing similar scanners that they're implementing at the Maricopa County level. He's actually had conversations with Penzone and is going to continue to have conversations with him is what he told me is that he really wants to 
talk to Penzone about what he's learned here locally and then, you know, be able to implement that at the state level. The other part of this, like every other law enforcement agency and, and people, I don't know why people don't see it this way, but corrections officers are law enforcement inside the prisons. It's not just turning keys and moving inmates. There's criminal investigations and all kinds of things that go on in the prisons. Uh, staffing is an issue for them and maybe even more so in the prisons than with officers on the street, correct? He told me that they currently have a 25% vacancy rate. Yeah, let me let me play that. I think this was interesting when he talked about these staffing rates. Staffing is a challenge, not just isolated here. It's a challenge nationwide. Focusing here in Arizona is the priority. And uh, what we know is we hover right around a 25% vacancy rate. Are the biggest issues for staffing with them, did he get in any details? Is it about pay? What is it? What is, why are they so short-staffed? He didn't necessarily get into details about why they're short-staffed, kind of. I mean, the whole entire nation is suffering a workforce shortage, and I think it was kind of chalked up to that. The governor chalked it up to a similar reason as well. Um, but one thing that both he and the governor said is corrections is a hard job. Um, you know, they deal with a lot, and the corrections officers and just employees of corrections, they need that type of support. And he has a really unique way that he wants to retain employees. He told me, you know, he's going around right now to all the facilities, talking to all the employees, and he wants to, while also bringing in employees, retain employees. And so he is actually, instead of pushing down mandates, making uh, policy with the employees so they feel like they have a, not feel, but so they do have a stake in corrections. And he believes that that is how he will retain employees, by including them into the conversation. Now, I'm making a bit of a leap on this, and maybe this is something you discussed with him, but when you put together uh, drug use, and a staffing shortage in a facility like this, it is about officer safety, but it's also about inmate safety because there's, there is irrational behavior, sometimes unpredictability when there's drug use going on. So this seems like one problem compounds the other. He did say, um, you know, when you put extra like burdens on staff that it can create security concerns and his biggest thing is making sure that they have secure prisons so i think that was kind of the linking when you're pushing you know more mandates on them putting more stress on them it can lead to security concerns and that is something that he wants to get rid of here he wants to fix that so that the prisons are secure he basically said to me at the end of the day i just want to do good corrections and i want us to be proud of the work that we're doing. I remember when you started working on this and and how, you know, it was just one door seemed to open the next, open the next. This isn't really over, is it? I mean, there's still more investigation for you to do and more to come, isn't there? There is. Uh, you know, now that this piece is aired, I think more people are feeling comfortable to come and talk to us about it before, you know, it was very hushed and people were scared. And I think having the governor and the director come out and be pretty transparent and open to talk about it makes people more comfortable. So, you know, more people are coming to us and telling us their stories. And that's just more avenues for us to dive down and to really take a deeper look as to maybe some of the channels that drugs are getting in and get insights from maybe inmates or former staff. You know, the story's not done here, but I think this was a really good jumping off point. And it's not just the drugs, it's the system itself overall that there's a lot of changes that are coming and happening. And it, uh, you bringing light to it, like I said when we started this, it's excellent work you guys have done out there in the newsroom and I can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I'm happy to see it all come to light. It's been something we've been working on, I mean, since 2022.
Yes, 2022. Wow. I was like, I had to think what year we're in for a second. <laughs> but it's been a while, so I'm happy to see it You know, finally be published and come to light and then continue moving forward. Well, that's Taylor Tassler. Great job, Taylor. She is uh, worked very hard on this along with other people on the team. You can go to KTAR.com and check out the entire series. Uh, and you, w- It is a worthwhile checking this out and what's happening. Coming up in a moment, a watchdog group keeping tabs on English language learners. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, I want to invite you to make a difference in our community. We are doing the best we can to help where we can. We've started something called the Action Alliance, and it's just a way for us to do community service projects together. We'll put them together. We make it very simple for you to do. You just get on the list. We'll notify you when things are happening. Sign up for the ones you can. Uh, just text the word ACTION to 411923. We'll get you on the list. We'll even send you a free t-shirt while supplies last. Just text ACTION to 411-923. As most of you know, education for me, especially K through 12, I think early education is the key to success, whether it's immediate success or later in life when you kind of buckle down and take things seriously. Uh, But we also know being a border state like we are in Arizona, that one of the big things in public education, and I guess it would also be every level of education, whether it's private or charter schools, is English language learners, but especially in the public schools. There is an advocacy group that said they are keeping a very close eye on the new superintendent of public instruction, Tom Horn. Uh, Daniel Hernandez is the quote. He is uh, with an organization. He's the government affairs director for Stand for Children in Arizona. Said not only are we going to watch all of the things coming out of the Department of Education, which he heads as the superintendent, we're going to be a watchdog. So one of the issues at face value when I read this is I think, okay, so already now we have a bit of an adversarial situation as if they have some distrust. Uh, Mr. Horn may want to do things differently than the previous administration, but I think here's where we have to start. We have to have a conversation that begins with believing that both sides want what's best. And I will tell you that that is not necessarily the case. I'm not I don't know this organization, don't know anybody involved. But in general, generally speaking, um, it is very political for the teacher association, for the AEU. It is politically motivated. You know, I've got the tweets from uh, one of their primaries, one of their big shots over there. One, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's a good thing. One of the leaders of that movement, um, Rebecca Gorelli, they call her Union Becky. She has got a very adversarial point of view when it comes to Republicans, not just this administration and in uh, the Department of Education in general. Um there is a uh, a bill. Um, one of the representatives named Gress, Matt Gress, is uh, proposing a $10,000 raise for teachers, and Rebecca Gorelli doesn't want anything to do with it. Don't buy this. Well, because it doesn't include people that are not teachers. It doesn't include teacher assistants and other. So anybody that works in a school in their mind is considered an educator. This doesn't give the raise to the lunch lady. It doesn't give a raise to um, the custodians. It doesn't give a raise to anybody but teachers, but it's a $10,000 raise for teachers. She hates it and says Republicans, her quote, not mine, Republicans do not want to pay teachers. Now, this is what she said in a tweet. So this is about a re- an entire political party, the belief that they don't care at all about education. And that's just the wrong place to start this conversation. This conversation, I have a great rapport 
with Beth Lewis from Save Our Schools. We disagree on almost everything about how to fix issues. She gives me the respect that she believes I want what's best, even though I may be wrong. And uh, with all due respect to her, I feel the same way, that I know that she wants what's best. I also give her the respect because she is an educator. She does know what she's talking about. Even if I disagree with the solutions, there seems to be a respectful relationship and a respectful disagreement. There's a place there where you can work together. Both in that conversation, both sides of that conversation, wanting to find common ground somewhere and happy when you find it. That's the problem with everything in politics is it is such a fight. It is always us against them instead of us trying to against the problem. We may have and never fully agree on what the solutions are ever, but working together to come to the best results we can. I don't agree with a lot of things that people say, but I can say to them, I don't disagree with you. I'm not I'm not I'm not discounting you as a person in this kind of a situation where we're talking something as important as you've got people that come to this country, young children being brought here, put into the public school system and they're not fluent in English. So they have to learn English while they are learning and trying to keep up with grade level. And imagine how much harder that is. We have such a small percentage of children in elementary school reading and performing math skills at grade level. And these are English speakers. These are their native languages, English. Um, imagine now facing those things and not being as fluent or have it not be your primary language. How do we get over that hurdle? The faster we can. You know, the younger kids pick up languages much faster than adults. And, uh, you know, one of my biggest regrets is not learning Spanish when I was younger. But it's never too late, I guess. But imagine being someone in the education system in the U.S. here in Arizona and not speaking English. You've got to get them over that hurdle before they can go on and do other things. And I just think it's an interesting conversation. What is best practices? If this organization doesn't believe that the Horn administration at the Department of Education is the is using best practices, then, you know, have a seat at the table and have a conversation about what you think improvement could be. If there is suspicion that you're just not good at the job and you don't care, there's never going to be a relationship. It is always going to be adversarial. I'm not saying that's how it is. The concern is that's what it will be. So that's just kind of the, 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 the take, just another wrinkle in all of this as we try to get young people prepared for the rest of their lives. Coming up in a moment, uh, conversations about uh, mass shootings, the impact of mass shootings, and what can be done as it, the conversation is continuing to be heated. But what are the things that we should be focused on? We'll get to it coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Kind of a, a very interesting, to me at least it's very interesting, is that um, uh, Dr. Chad Geston, the superintendent of the Phoenix Union High School District, is leaving uh, Phoenix Union School District. He is leaving and going on to bigger and better things. Um, interestingly enough, because we are now going to talk about these school shootings, it was a couple of years ago that the Phoenix Union 
district decided to get rid of uh, school resource officers. Well, a committee, public safety, I think is the committee over there at the district, has recommended to the board that they reinstate school resource officers on Phoenix Union campuses. Now, that doesn't mean that the school district has to do it. It's a recommendation. But in light of what's happened in Nashville and in light of what's happening on campuses, I think it's not a bad idea. Um, so it, although I don't believe it was Dr. Geston himself, he was kind of the face of this when this decision was made. And it was made in, a, in my, again, my humble opinion, a very political way because it was said that there are some students on campus that don't feel comfortable around the police, which is all that to fund the police kind of movement that was going on and it's gone the way of other cities we've seen an uptick there is activity on school grounds with drug dealing and reports of that i've i've seen pictures of students with guns on campus now i'm not going to call it rampant i'm i'm not saying that at all but once is enough right once is too much isn't it and so hopefully those changes are coming but um i don't know dr geston but wish him well um, in, in the new things that he has going on. But it is a big news story in education in Arizona, which we talk quite often about. And uh, the Phoenix, the head of the Phoenix Union High School District is moving forward and going to do different things. So we'll see what changes that brings to the district. Um, into this topic of how we discuss and what's going on with these school shootings, is it possible – And I don't know that it is. And in many cases, I always think it's possible. But I don't know in this case if it's possible. Can the two sides of this issue come to any kind of an agreement? I am absolutely 100% of the belief that new laws will do nothing because the people that commit these acts are the epitome of not caring about anything moral and not caring about anything legal. They don't care about any laws. Once you get to a point that you can level a firearm and shoot strangers, especially children, you don't care about any law that's been created. And there is no way you're going to stop bad people from getting firearms. That's my position. The issue is, and this is maybe where I'm I'm, I'm just feeling a little bit um, – What's the word, I guess, I'm feeling a little bit put upon is that there are people on the other side of this conversation that keep saying this is about children. When are we going to do something about children like they care about dead children and I don't? No conversation should start that way. No conversation should start with me or people like me having to defend how much we want these issues to stop. You should assume I want them to stop like I assume you want them to stop. And then from there, we can argue about why I'm wrong or why you're wrong. But that's not how the conversation goes. Now, I'm going to add one more level to this. People in the transgender community are very upset about details coming out about this person being transgender and how it is upping the fear level for them of retribution against the community as a whole because one person that happens to be trans committed this crime. Now, the issue I would say here for me is, and when we find out more and hopefully we will, did her being or him, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but this person – um, committed this crime if what we're, we heard preliminarily is true that being trans may have been part of the issue meaning they were sent to this school when they were much younger they had a grudge against this school whatever that school is if being trans played a role in that then it is pertinent it is to the situation but let me tell you why this is no different than anything else 
The defund the police movement came after the murder of George Floyd. Every single cop was being held accountable by the behavior of that one officer and the officers there that did nothing. In situations where cops do the wrong thing, the entire profession suffers, not once in a while, every time. The defund the police movement is alive and well, not nearly what it was, but it is still alive and well. And the belief that all of them are suspicious, prone to violence, that there are a few people that are okay and good in the profession, but they are the exception and not the rule. Well, let's go to the other side of this conversation with the trans people, with, you know, people that are trans talking about this topic. When a trans person says, well, this is how society sees us, that we're all mentally ill and we're all the problem. There may be some of us that are level headed. There may be some of us that are okay, but in the minds of America, we're dangerous to children. And all this does is perpetuate that fear and it makes it scarier for us. I just talked with Daryl Crippling. He is the head of the Phoenix Law Enforcement Association about the more recent uptick in violence against police officers. Why do you think that is? Is that because of this underlying perception that police are the problem? Phoenix Union High School District removes cops from their campuses because they believe they are the problem. I mean, there's an argument to be made for that as well. So if in the light of these six victims, who are really the victims in all of this, that there are members of the trans community that are, A, upset about misgendering this person and not using the appropriate pronouns, but more than that, saying you can't identify this as a trans person and you can't release the manifesto and you can't do this because it makes it more dangerous for trans people, cops have the the uptick in violence against cops. What is that correlated with? Does that mean when a cop does something wrong – That we don't identify what agency they're from and we don't play upon the idea that this is a systemic problem in law enforcement. And you can say that about uh, how many times you hear about people that are using race as an issue. So there's a lot more to this conversation, a lot more to it. But in in the in the end, Americans don't want to see children get killed. The fact in this case that it was someone that was trans may play a role in it based on what the motive was. And if the trans community doesn't want to be associated with this person in this way with the death, then you have to denounce it. You have to come out and say, I don't care who you are. When you do that, you're not one of us. Instead of saying we have to hide the fact and not mention that this person is trans because it might be dangerous for other trans people. Well, Look what happens when a cop when a cop in Minnesota does something wrong, cops in Phoenix pay for it. That's not fair either. That's not fair either. In a moment, uh, Arizona Democrats suing to block the no labels party. We'll give you details next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. 
invite you again to help us make a difference in the community. We started something called the Action Alliance, where we are out doing community service projects. We will organize them, notify you when they're happening. You can join us to all the ones you want to come to. It's just that simple. No commitment. Just come join us when you can. It's called the Action Alliance. Just text the word ACTION to 411-923, and we will put you on the list and even send you a free T-shirt while supplies last. That's ACTION to 411-923. So the Arizona Democrats are suing um, uh, to stop the no labels party, to block a third party challenge. Now, what's interesting about this is, and I don't know how big it's going to get this movement. I don't know. But preliminarily, there have been four people in Maricopa County that have registered for the no labels party. But Democrats are upset about this. This is a national story from the Washington Post. Uh, The Arizona Democratic Party will file a lawsuit today against the state's top election administrator about the no labels party. The lawsuit in the state court in Phoenix reflects growing concerns that the no labels third party ticket in 2024 will jeopardize the relationship. Or I'm sorry, the reelection hopes of President Biden. Um, a political party. This is, for instance, a political party must register as such with the FEC, Federal Election Commission. No labels is not registered as a political party. And in fact, it's nonprofit corporation organizations under 501c4 of the Internal Revenue Code. Um, here's a quote. A political party is subject to contribution limits and is only permitted to take a specific amount of money from a permissible donors. No labels can accept unlimited amounts of money from anyone. That's one of the complaints. What's fascinating about this, if you go back, and this is part of how politics rolls, and you may know this, you may not. Um, stuff like this happens all the time. The old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, go back to when Bill Clinton won his first term in office. There were Republicans that were upset with George H.W. Bush, or better known as Bush 41 in political circles. Uh, Bush 41 became unpopular because he, he quoted he was quoted as saying, read my lips, no new taxes, and then went back on that promise. So a man named Ross Perot decided that he was going to run for president. This was a billionaire, had the money to run, had the political and, mo- and monetary connections, and he ran for president as a third-party candidate. And the fear from the very beginning was he had no chance of winning, which he didn't, but he was going to siphon enough votes away from George H.W. Bush because the majority of people that would move away from their candidate and protest vote a third-party candidate would be Republicans and not Democrats. And for the people that don't remember a lot about that time, Bill Clinton was not impressive to people when he first got elected. I don't mean that as an insult because he changed their minds as he was president. But there were stories, I can't remember if it was Time Magazine had a cover, um, and it showed Bill Clinton being very, very small on the cover, and the headline basically was not up to the job. Um, There were concerns that he was not up to the job of President of the United States. And so he did not roll into office as popular as he ended up being with his party. But George H.W. Bush, Republicans were upset with him about the tax pledge. And so this third party candidate came rolling in and did exactly what people feared, siphoned off enough votes for him so that Bill Clinton became president of the United States. I tell that story because that's the fear of what's going to happen to Joe Biden. And they're trying to stop it legislatively. They were really happy it was going on with Ross Perot. They're not so happy that this is going to happen with Joe Biden. But I think Joe Biden's got bigger problems. Joe Biden has much bigger problems. His uh, popularity, I think his, his latest numbers are right at about 40%. Um, he is seen negatively by far too many people. 
And one of the polls that con- should concern the Democrats the most is that Joe, uh, 25% in a recent Gallup poll, I believe it was Gallup that did it, 25% of Democrats want him to run again. Think about that. 25% of his own party. So he's got bigger issues. And so that's the fear that when you have 75% of the people in your own party, if no one runs against you in your party because you're the sitting president and you don't get primaried, meaning you are automatically the nominee, you've got 75% of your party that's not happy with you. If a third party candidate jumps in the race that has the money to get into that race, um, they are going to take away a huge number of Democrat votes. And by default, a Republican will get elected. That's the fear from the Democratic Party. But does that mean it's a lawsuit? I'm really the Arizona Democratic Party doing this because they are now a viable party, according to the Secretary of State here in Arizona. And the Maricopa County Recorder's Office says in Maricopa County, about four people have registered in this party. But whether people register with that party or they don't, a third option on the ticket, what is going to happen now If you've got a Republican candidate, a Democrat candidate, an independent candidate and the sitting senator that is Kirsten Sinema, and then all of a sudden let's throw a monkey wrench into this by throwing in a fourth party, which would be the no-name party candidate, what does that do to the race? Who does that benefit? And those are major concerns um, from as far as party goes. But there are others that say that we're tired of political parties. Look at the huge number of independent registered voters there are now and more and more people changing their affiliation every single week. We are seeing people change their affiliation from Republican and Democrat to independent or when they're first time registrants, they register as an independent. Both parties ought to be paying very close attention to this just after 10 o'clock. Um, Phoenix, not the only major city struggling with homelessness. We're going to tell you about Denver, Colorado, and the trouble that that city has caused recently in doing something about homelessness. And an ASU student attacking the problem of hunger from a very unique way. We'll get to all of that coming up.